God's word gets really specific in Proverbs and it warns us not to follow the path of an adulteress. So it says, her lips drip honey, her speech is smoother than oil. Like she's very seductive, she's very appealing. But what God actually says is, in the end, she is sharp as a two-edged sword and her feet go down to death. This is the Honest Discourse Podcast, where we host loving and authentic conversations that explore truth and exemplify meaningful interactions within our generation. This podcast is created by Anchored North, and our mission is to make captivating, honest, and shareable videos that explore mankind's greatest need, redemption through Jesus. In today's episode, we will be continuing our discussion between Alice, a sex worker, and Paula, a Christian. The purpose of this discourse is not to establish middle ground between both conversationalists, but to explore what is true. Now, as Christians, we believe the Word of God is inspired, inerrant, and authoritative. We believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. We believe that the Holy Spirit transforms lives, and we believe that God's way is genuinely the best way. But we also recognize that there are many viewpoints out there, and today we're discussing differing positions on sexuality and its expression. Our guests today, Alice and Paula, have kindly accepted our invitation to voice their perspectives. Although our organization believes what the Bible teaches regarding sexuality, we gratefully commend both of them for choosing to have this discussion. Now, in a time when people like to group with their tribes and demonize other viewpoints, we can only celebrate their decision to speak to one another in a loving and personal way. The narratives of both conversationalists will be represented in an equal and authentic manner, and listeners will greatly benefit from hearing both of their stories and perspectives. All right, with all that said, let's get started. All right, Paula and Alice, we are going to continue getting each of your responses to the statements. Let's dive right in. It is loving to warn someone who is seducing others into sin. I'm not necessarily sure it's inherently loving. I think how something is being done very much so determines if it's a loving act or not. Because there's a, there's a very big difference between getting in somebody's face and finger wagging and saying, you are committing sin and I disagree with you and you're going to burn in hell and kind of taking this really hard negative attack stance. I, I don't think that's very loving. Now, if you want to share your beliefs with someone, I, I think it's a good idea to generally get consent first before just preaching your beliefs to someone hey, I have some thoughts about this. Are you open to hearing them? And now that you've gotten someone's consent to share those thoughts and share that religious morality, whatever the nature of the topic so may be, I think that absolutely can be a very loving conversation. Much in the same way, it can be very loving to turn to a friend and notice, hey, you're losing a little bit of weight. Hey, can is it okay with you if we have a little bit of a talk about that? I'm a little bit worried about you. I've noticed you've not been eating enough and I care about you. And therefore I want to say something to you. Do I have your consent to do so? Because without consent at that point, you're talking at someone instead of with someone, because it's a, it's a one-way conversation. If the other person's not listening at that point, you're just first wasting your breath and second, that person's generally going to take a very, oh, well, if you don't even care enough 
to find out if I want to hear what you're saying. I mean, who are you really serving here? Are you serving yourself or serving the other person? Is this a message of love or is this just something that you're going to say regardless? So I think that the context really matters. But by all means, you can have that conversation in a very, very loving way. I love that. I love that you use the word consent for conversation. It's it's true. So when I thought about this question, I thought about earlier this week, I took the boys on a hike around Green Lakes. And my one-year-old was just really fussing. And so I took him out of the stroller and put him down to play in the sand. And at one point I looked over and I saw his two-year-old brother, Iron, like grab him from behind. And I didn't say to Iron, like, hey, like, he's not hurting you. Like, let him do whatever he wants because his instinct was right. Like he wanted to protect his brother. And so, yes, totally assuming that you're saying something out of a genuine heart of love and compassion and not out of like hate or anger or harshness, then I do think it's one of the most loving things that we can do. So that said, Alice, can I share like what I think? Of course, absolutely. Okay, so God's word gets really specific in Proverbs and it warns us not to follow the path of an adulteress. So it says that, and I think you'll agree with this, like her lips drip honey, her speech is smoother than oil. Like she's very seductive. She's very appealing. But what God actually says is when you look at the long view, in the end, she is sharp as a two-edged sword and her feet go down to death. And in another passage, it says, the mouth of the forbidden woman is a deep pit. He with whom the Lord is angry will fall into it. So I totally don't think that you realize that you're leading people into a dark place. Like you think that you are helping people, but like just based on what God says, I think that on behalf of all those men and women who you are leading into a pit, like I would just implore you to repent and to cling to Jesus and to find like a new calling for your life because God really does have a better path for you. And it's like really hard to say, but like I've prayed for you every day since I talked with you. I really enjoy you. And so like I do say it out of love for you. I want you to thrive and to experience God's best for you. Well, thank you. I, I think that's a beautiful wish for anyone to want more for another human being in its very essence, that's, that is a kindness. It's certainly not an offense. My personal beliefs, of course, differ with your beliefs and my lived experiences kind of inform me. For example, I've gotten to spend the companionship and spend time with a war veteran. He lost his lower limbs. His wife left him while he was having his other leg removed. They were going back and forth to try to save one of his legs and they couldn't and she couldn't handle it anymore. So she left him. He decided to come and spend time with me. And when we went to part ways, he handed me a note and he said, read this after I walk out the door. And I open it up after he leaves. And essentially it was a suicide note. He was coming into this with the expectation of this being his final experience. And he said, this doesn't apply anymore. I know that I can be loved. I know that there is compassion. I know that my life isn't over just because I don't have legs anymore. And I have you to thank for that. So I, I hear experiences like that. And 
again, I think it really comes down to the individual where if you believe in this specific religion and that's what your morality tells you, that's your, that is your lived experience. For someone who isn't necessarily religious, their experience and their lens is going to be different. And of course, everyone can go back and forth. What's right? What's wrong? What's this? What's that? But it all comes down to kind of the, the personal level of belief. And personally, I, I believe that there is a place for sex work in society. And I believe that the work I do does have a benefit to people. And at the same time, I believe we exist in a planet that also gives you the right to your beliefs as well. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Well, you're super gracious. I hope to be as gracious when other people disagree with me. And that is a beautiful story. What I would guess from that is you are a very loving, caring individual. And so I'm so grateful that he decided not to end his life. And I, I wouldn't necessarily attribute that to sex, but to you seeing him and showing him that he has value. So absolutely, like in the short term, like I can see how you could see, like there are things that look great. I just know from what God says that long-term, we're not ultimately providing release for people or that sort of thing. We're actually leading people into an addiction to something that is actually, like scripture says that this is the one sin out of every sin that we are actually committing against our own body. And I don't fully understand that yet, so I, I hesitate to even bring it up. But I just know that God says that it's destructive in the long run to do things outside of his ways. And I know, I know based on who God is, that he's not withholding from us. You know, that first story in Genesis that I've talked so much about, like he gave Adam and Eve all the good fruit in the garden and said there was just one that they couldn't eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the one they wanted. That's the one they went for. And in the long run has only resulted in death. People should not feel shame for exploring their sexual desires. I think I can agree with that. With that statement, again, very contextually, if we assume that it's safe, sane, consensual, not hurting others, not violating the law, then choosing to explore yourself shouldn't be a shame-focused experience. And I feel like part of the reason why we experience shame is due to stigma, the judgment of others or the fear of judgment from others, the perception of how they will interpret our actions, our reactions. And as a result, I think that sex and the exploration of sex really becomes this kind of like stigmatized activity where people put shame on themselves for it. I, I don't think there's any any shame in it at all whatsoever, nor should there be. Again, assuming, you know, safe, sane, consensual, legal, all those important quantifiers. I mean, if you're going out and having sex with a small child, you should be very ashamed of yourself, and that's a problem. That is not okay. But within the context of safe, sane, and consensual, yeah, I, I think that's that's not a reason to feel shame. What's the sane? I haven't heard that, like, triad of words together. Mm-hmm. So... It's sometimes called SSC for short, safe, sane, and consensual. It's a BDSM term that can be extracted and applied to other situations. 
safe, meaning that we're not doing anything that's causing physical harm to others. Sane, we're both in our right minds. No one's in like a psychologically altered condition from drugs or illness. Alcohol. Bingo. They have to be able to consent. They have to be of essentially sane mind. Like if someone's having a mental health crisis, they can't necessarily give informed consent. And then, of course, the final part being consensual. There's um, another series of words that sometimes get put together in the BDSM space. It's called RAC, which is risk aware consensual kink, which speaks to the fact that, hey, we might be doing something that now has an inherent risk. For example, if you're getting kinky and using ropes and you don't tie someone up in a safe fashion, that's a very risky thing. So you have to be aware of the risk, educated and informed before then engaging in that particular activity. So kink, what does kink mean? Kink generally refers to any sort of non-vanilla activity. For example, some people might describe, ooh, I think that like the scratching my partner's arms during sex, that's like kinky. Or some people like biting, for example, like, oh, he left a hickey on my neck. Oh, that was kind of kinky. Or maybe you're using floggers and that's how kink manifests. Or, ooh, I think that women in high heels are particularly sexy and I'm really like attracted to this this idea and oh I think it's kind of kinky when she's you know wearing the heels and those can all be kind of different things it's a very 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 broad term so I can't necessarily say like kink is this one thing like some people could say like oh if you place your hand on another person's throat that's a potentially kinky thing Well, some people might say, no, that's just trusting my partner and letting them interact with me in this intimate way. So it's kind of like what kink means to you, really. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks for explaining. So as far as people shouldn't feel ashamed for exploring their sexual desires, let me start by saying like sexuality and talking about it like we're doing right now, like we need more of this. It's not something that we should be ashamed to talk about. I'm being really intentional with my two-year-old right right now. Like, for example, he walked into the room the other day and was like, oh, like, is that what, does that help you go swimming? And I'm like, oh no, like that's a bra, women wear it. And like, just make it like it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. And I also think like, absolutely, we shouldn't seek to shame others for their sin. We shouldn't be ashamed of past sexual sin if we've repented of it. But I do think like, whether we're aware of it or not, I think part of humanity, this side of the fall, is that we all have some level of shame that we walk around with. And I think we're like, in different ways, hiding from God and hiding from others. I don't think we have to stay there. But it wasn't always like that. Again, just going back to that account in Genesis, it's so foundational that it says that when Adam and Eve became one flesh, they were both naked and were not ashamed. I love that the Bible includes details like that. But in the next breath, we see them rebelling against God. And as soon as they take that bite, it says that their eyes were opened. They realize that they're naked. They feel exposed with it. Sin has entered the world and shame along with it. And so then you see them trying to hide from each other. They sew together fig leaf underwear. Obviously, that's not doing much. Then God walks through the garden. They hear him. They hide from him behind the bushes. 
But I find it super interesting that like God never says that we need to try to get back to our nakedness. Rather, it's like he realizes now that sin has entered the world and we're vulnerable and we're in this dangerous world. He offers the only safe place for us to hide or take refuge in Jesus who bore our guilt and our shame for us. So um, that first account in Genesis shows God actually making tunics out of animal skin for Adam and Eve and clothing them. And similarly, I think that points to how he offers to clothe each one of us in Jesus's robes of righteousness. And we're told that whoever looks to him is radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. So I think he's he wants to free us from the shame that we all do experience. Intimacy is beautiful no matter the sexual expression. Again, I, I do have to preface it with legal, safe, sane, and consensual. But I, I think that intimacy between two women, that's absolutely beautiful. Intimacy between friends is beautiful. Intimacy between a husband and a wife is beautiful. I think that intimacy is an inherent part of human nature and human connection, whether that occupy sexual intimacy, emotional intimacy, even just the intimacy of like a warm, supportive hug. I, I think there's absolutely a true beauty to that. Yeah, and I would say absolutely intimacy is beautiful, but if we're putting in there sexual expression, then I would say, not surprisingly, no, because our creator calls the shots and he has a very specific design intended for sexuality. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So all sexual expressions aren't good because sex has a designer. And whatever expressions fall outside of his design are sin. So example, illustration, I think of Alice, I know you'll go on like romantic dates with people. And so like a candlelight dinner is a beautiful thing, right? But like if that fire were to escape its boundaries, then it could so easily just rage out of control and consume homes, forests, restaurants, people, like everything in its path. So I just think that our creator knows what is ultimately good for us and trust him with that. We are accountable to God for every thought, word, and action. I do disagree with that, again, because I don't have this inherent belief in God in the first place to then feel as if we are held accountable to God. If anything, I, I would say that we are held accountable by society, not necessarily for our thoughts. Our thoughts very much so can be our own, but our actions, what we do with them, society absolutely will hold us accountable. If you take a gun into a school and shoot someone, you will absolutely be held accountable for that action. Yeah, there's actually, you're making me think of, I was going to pull it up, but I won't. It's a verse that talks about how like government is God's authority. Like he has put them in place to hold us in check. So thank you, God, for policemen and judges and all that. I do believe that the Bible teaches clearly that we're accountable to God for every thought, word, and action. And Jesus says that he's coming back the second time. You know, the first time he came as a baby in a manger, he came to carry the sins of the world on his shoulders in our place. The next time is not going to be such a quiet entry 
He's going to come back as a fearsome, terrifying judge. The picture of him in the last book of the Bible coming in is quite scary. And all of us will be held accountable for every thought, word, and action. But it's it's actually even a little deeper than that because the problem isn't just what we do. It's a problem of who we are. Like we sin because we're sinners. I think about this verse where this is how God sees humanity apart from his intervention and transformation. He says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we hear like every intention, only evil and continually. Now, like looking around, just as I look at your life and you look at mine, like we don't see that. Like I have great neighbors. I got a neighbor next door who takes like immaculate care of his house, that sort of thing. But it's when we consider God's holiness, he's completely other than us. He is completely pure and perfect. And he has made us in his image to know him and to make him known. And so the standard is so high that we have this fundamental problem that praise the Lord, like backing up, like God doesn't just do loving things. God actually is love. And so he loved the world so much. He loved sinners so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have everlasting life. Again, this him living with his people where we're face to face with him, known and fully knowing. I would support my child if they wanted to be a sex worker. Absolutely. I, I don't have any intention of having children right now. But if I were to say have a kid and they came to me as a legal adult and said, I want to be a sex worker, I want to work within this industry, I would encourage them to do so in a way that's safe, sane, consensual, and legal, participate in the systems that are provided for us rather than working in an independent or criminalized context. And absolutely, if that's something that they're interested in doing, I would just want to make sure that they have all the education they need in order to do so in a way that's safe. So to start with a story kind of illustration, I um, often ask my two-year-old, do you know that mommy loves you? And he's like, yeah. And then I follow that up with, nothing you do will ever stop me from loving you. You know that, right? And he says, yes. So I will always love my boys unconditionally with a love that flows from God. If one of them became a sex worker, which is completely a possibility, right? Like they will grow up and be whoever they are. I can't control that. If they were to do that, I wouldn't punish them. I wouldn't withhold my love from them. I wouldn't treat them differently. But my heart would break for them because of what their line of work says about their lack of love and respect for God and his ways. And I would be praying fervently that they would come to taste and see how good God is. I, I love that you support your kids no matter what. It's such a beautiful thing. The stories that I hear sometimes of kids being kicked out of their families for coming out as gay or coming out as a sex worker or any of these things that may be oppositional to the religious morality I hear those stories and I'm like, mm, not so sure that's what God or Jesus necessarily is telling you to do in that scenario. By all means, pray. By all means, care and show compassion. But to then turn your back on your own kid, I, I, I couldn't even fathom something like that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, his Jesus summed up the law as love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Like, we're not the judge. 
That's God's job. Morality is defined by the individual. I agree in part. I think that we get to determine what our moral values are. However, as participants in civilization and in society, there is morality and things that we societally believe and hold to have moral value, such as don't hurt children, don't hurt animals, don't kill people. And that kind of morality is defined by society. You might not personally agree with it, but in order to live within society, I feel like we essentially sign a um, almost like a, a contract with the greater society where we are agreeing to abide by these basic tenets in order to have a society that can exist with all of these people and all of this diversity in a way that's not going to cause harm to others. So I think that you can define your personal morality, but then there's also the morality that is defined for us by society. And we do have to respect those things as well, whether we like it or not. I, I don't think that morality is defined by an individual. And uh, when we talk about like basing it off of society's values, I think that that's a little problematic because society's values change. So, I mean, this is an extreme example, but like look at Hitler and the society that was going on under him. Like there has to be a fixed, unchanging morality because God exists and he's unchanging. And so we change, governments, societies change, but he does not. Mm. And I think that's an interesting point too, that within the context of morality, if we are seeing society's morality go against the basic tenets of don't cause harm to others, live and let live is kind of the, the two things that I think, generally speaking, are a good way to summarize how we should live our lives is don't judge others, don't hurt others, live your life, make choices that aren't going to negatively impact others. If we see society shifting towards an attack, I think we absolutely need to speak up, rise up against that. It's something that's written into our country's code here in the States that if we see problems within the government, we do absolutely have the right to bear arms. We have the right to rise up. And I love the fact that you brought up the extremist example of like Hitler. That absolutely is a problematic society. And in that sort of scenario, going against what that belief is within society is absolutely justifiable. So I think you're kind of pointing to the fact that like we have some sense of what is right in general. And I, I don't understand all this, but I think it's because like God has given us all a conscience and like he has made us in his image. And so while his image has been distorted in all of us. Like there is still a semblance of we know what's right and good in general because God has left that mark on us. I am very grateful that he has also given us his word where it's, it's very clear what is right and what is wrong. I think that morality, like all things, isn't necessarily black or white, right or wrong, this or that. But there are some things that or to the far extreme, such as is murder, for example. I don't think there is anyone that's going to say it is okay to walk up to a random car and shoot the driver. 
no one's going to say, yeah, that's totally a-okay, anarchy rules, kill people if you want to. I think most people have a sense of morality where they they put themselves in the scenario. What if I were the driver and someone were to pull out a gun on me? How would I feel? And, and I do think that's like a, a universal human truth. Now, there are things that are always going to be in contention. For example, gay, gay marriage. That's something that some people believe is right. Some people believe is wrong. But those two guys over there getting married isn't going to negatively affect your life. They're not pointing a gun at you. They're not going to harm you. So I think it kind of exists on a spectrum in that way. So your example of, you know, we all know that we shouldn't murder. It's interesting because in Matthew 5, Jesus in his famous Sermon on the Mount, he actually uses that as one example of like, you've heard it said, do not murder. Basic law. But I say that whoever whoever hates his brother has already committed murder with him in his heart. So like there's a morality that, that God is interested in beginning in our hearts that most of us don't even see. Yeah, I guess I'll just leave it at that. And I'm also curious what you think as far as like you say, you know, yeah, it's duh, like don't murder, but there are so many murders all the time. So I'm just curious, like what you attribute that to. Stigma, mental illness, drugs, there's all sorts of potential things that could lead to someone making that sort of decision. And it's not just one sort of person that has the potential to commit murder. All of us have the physical capacity to cause that level of harm to another human being under the right conditions. For example, if somebody were to hold a gun to your child's head, a lot of people would then say, you are justified to save your child, to eliminate, destroy, or murder that person that's intending to commit murder. And then you'd be like, was that the wrong action? So it's, it's a very interesting concept. But as to where that originates from, I think that originates from the fact that we do have free will within society. We do have kind of this potential kinetic energy and where we direct that energy and what we do with that energy is directed by our life experiences. It can be directed by mental illness. It could be directed by drugs. It could be directed by upbringing. But every single person has the potential and it's just how that manifests, I think. I agree with you that we all have the potential for that. Absolutely. Sin can suppress people's consciences so that they no longer experience guilt. I'm not really sure what to do with that statement in the sense that sin is inherently viewed as kind of a religious construct. So you have to believe in this idea of sin in order to then really have a stance on the statement. And I'm not necessarily sure that there's this black-white litmus test of was this a sin, was this not a sin, because I don't prescribe to a, a religious morality. So I, I'm not really sure. If we replace sin with something like could drugs suppress? Absolutely, it certainly could. Could 
familiar education. For example, the Westboro Baptist Church probably sees no problem with the way that they practice their belief, and the kids see nothing wrong with holding signs and protesting on the side of the road, and they don't understand because that morality was suppressed by their upbringing. So I'm just not entirely sure what to do with sin in this scenario, because that is such a specifically religious idea. Yes, I, th- I think Romans 1 speaks to that about how God at some point just gives us over and we have a seared conscience and we celebrate what he detests. He says clearly that all of us have sinned and we fall short of God's glory. And I can see how like, you know, left to ourselves without this witness right here of, of God's very words, I can see how we'd be like, you know, whatever, like anything goes. But Jesus came to perfectly image God so that we could know exactly what he's like. And he has seen that there is a record that has been preserved for all of time so that we we wouldn't have to go that way. So it says that, that scripture is a sword that pierces our hearts. And I do think this is a book that is living and active and it can waken a dead conscience to show us that there is a God, we are all sinners, but he has provided the substitute that we, and savior that we so desperately needed in Jesus. And I could be completely incorrect in the way I'm thinking of this. Of course, not as familiar with the religion as you are. So when you say Jesus is perfect, is the idea that Jesus was born as a human, he incarnates as a human, embodies what it is to be human and then lives a life without any flaw, any problem whatsoever, and then dies completely free of any sort of sin, any sort of anything. Yeah, thanks for asking. He is, Jesus existed before time, one with the Father. It actually says that God is three persons in one. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus was sent as both fully God and fully man. Now, like, get our minds to wrap around that. We can't, but he's God, and so he can pull it off. So he is fully man. He experiences all of, he has to learn to crawl and to potty train and breastfeeds and learns how to obey his parents and experiences all the temptations that we do. Like, saw beautiful women like tempted to lust for them but continually relied on his father and did not sin and yes did that on our behalf he was the only substitute that god could have accepted for our sin because he was a representative because he was fully human and yet he was perfect and so yeah he died was buried god accepted his transactional exchange on behalf of all those who would trust in him. He proved that by raising him from the dead. And then Jesus revealed himself to at least 500 eyewitnesses, spent like about 40 days with them, and then went back to his father where he says he's patient, doesn't want anyone to perish, but wants everyone to come to know him. And so he's waiting for that last person to put their trust in him and then we'll return as judge, but also create a new heavens and a new earth where he will wipe away all of our tears, all sickness 
and death will be a thing of the past and we'll just write all that our sin wronged. Gotcha. Because I guess, and again, I I could be confused here, the idea of like a a small child growing up in kind of this most perfect way, I, I feel like it's almost inherently human to be less than perfect and to be flawed like he had to learn how to walk he had to learn how to speak and and then again I guess that's the whole nature of the bible is that it's beyond kind of understanding comprehension and belief because I think of it and it's like well every kid falls when they're learning how to walk every child stumbles and every child causes pain potentially to their parents while they're going through this experience of growing up and so in order for him to be fully, fully human, my thought would be is at some point within that lived experience of Jesus's life, inevitably there were situations where he caused pain to others without intending to. I would think just by the, the very nature of being human in any capacity. It's possible, certainly, that he caused pain to others in the sense of, I think of like a time when his mother and his brothers, it it records that they came to him and there was such a large crowd around him that people were like, hey, your mom and your brothers are out there. Like they want you. And Jesus is like, hey, my mother and my brothers are those who keep the father's will. So like that could have been hurtful to Mary, but Jesus wasn't sinning in that. He was just like pointing to like my ultimate father is God the Father, and I'm doing his work. And as far as like, did he fall and skin his knee? Like, absolutely. But the Bible tells like, he is the second Adam. So like, Adam is our representative. All of us are in Adam, we're born in sin. It, you're right, it's hard to fathom humanity apart from sin. And yet Jesus is the second Adam, the new humanity. And he lives that for us. And then gives us his spirit and is in the process of transforming us into that new humanity as well. Gotcha. If I kind of remove the the religious implications of it and look at the Bible as kind of just, this is another story by which you could learn things and kind of extrapolate different details from, I'd, I'd say over overwhelmingly, it seems to be a, a pretty positive story. I can see how a lot of people find a lot of comfort within that, without a doubt. It, it definitely, it's a thing. There is no denying that it definitely has shaped part of our society, for sure. And I, I think, like, even as someone who's not religious, I, I do think, again, part of the, the lived human experience is understanding what others' experiences are and how they relate to their life. So I, I do think the Bible is incredibly interesting because it does guide a, a facet of our society and what their morality looks like. And I really do think that there's a beauty in that understanding of, okay, now I have a little bit more of an understanding of the conceptualization of Jesus as it applies within this framework. Yeah, you're right. It's the number one best-selling book of all time. So like, if you're interested, I'll gladly send you a beautiful Bible. And I would really encourage you to read Jesus's words and about his life for himself, because he is a historical reality and one that we have to grapple with. Like, is he who he says he is or is he a complete lunatic? He can't just be a good teacher if he claims to be God, if he claims to have to be the savior of the world. He's either crazy and a liar or he is who he says he is. 
Mm. And, it, it, and it's interesting, too. Like, I, I've read several iterations of the Bible. It's like the same basic book. But it. what I've always found interesting, too, is that each version of the Bible and where it exists within society includes some things, doesn't include other things. And I even think that there's like um, something really interesting to be said by what's within each specific Bible. Because even within Christianity, there's different facets of Christianity and different facets of Catholicism. And there's just this whole wealth of story and information and knowledge and various resource within that space. And I, I just think it's so interesting, too, to see how that's even changed over time as to which things get factored in, which things get pulled out, which kind of goes into the, oh, well, these are a part of the Bible, sort of, but we're going to call them the Dead Sea Scrolls because they're somewhere between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And it's relevant, but we're not sure where it factors in. And I just think that's all really interesting. Yeah, you are you're a very intelligent woman. And w one thing that I would in encourage you with is, I, I know you don't agree with this, but like they can't all be true. Like I said, Jesus is either the only way to the Father, which he claims to be, or he's not. So it matters deeply. And I would encourage you to just keep, I know you said you've had like a very open-minded, you've been exposed to a lot of religions. I would just say like, if, if you could, maybe even just during this time of COVID-19, when there's not as much going on, like, would you consider committing to just reading one of the gospels of just a, a book about Jesus? Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. I, I think that reading and knowledge and the pursuit of knowledge and understanding is valuable regardless of what your personal beliefs are, the understanding, totally worthwhile. Well, I will have to get your address and send you a little care package afterwards. Well, thank you. And I appreciate it too. I, I think that it's, it's interesting. I've had an opportunity to look at religious texts from different societies, both those that are still with us today, as well as societies that no longer are beliefs that no longer are brought to relevancy today, deities that are named and worshipped in old societies that aren't relevant to modern society. And I think that there's this interesting commonality, no matter what religion, what society we're talking about, which is that the idea of this serving as a guidebook to opening the mind to deeper levels of understanding that in of itself, whether you agree with the specific words, I, I do think that there is a value to reading religious texts, to understanding different forms of belief systems. And regardless if you believe in that system or not, there's still a lesson to be learned from it and understanding to be gained. Absolutely. Totally agree with that. And I would take it one step further and also say there is truth and we desperately need to find out what it is. With that... Thank you both, Alice and Paula, for being a part of this podcast. You have done a wonderful job stepping into one another's worlds. And now we want to ask, what final thought do you want to leave behind with your conversationalist? I would say as a, a final remark that regardless of what our personal religious beliefs are, we have to acknowledge that there is a delineation between church and state within this country, and that our laws need to be informed by something beyond just religion. 
So when it comes to the topic of, say, sex work in particular and whether we should legalize or decriminalize or should we legalize and decriminalize, I believe that we have to look at what the impact is to society and do our best to reduce harm. If having an unregulated system causes harm to women, it would be far safer for society to have a system that is legalized. Regardless if you agree with it should or should not exist, we have to look at the impact that it has on society and the people within that system. And in my opinion, that would look like decriminalization as well as legalization of sex work. It doesn't mean that everyone needs to go to a brothel, let alone work at a brothel or even participate in it. I simply believe that it has a right to exist within our society, much in the same way that churches have a right to exist within our society. So Alice, it's been a joy. Thank you so much for doing this. I, I admire you. I admire, one of the things I admire about you is that you care about other people's well-being. So uh, Greg asked us a little bit about each other before we started this podcast. He asked us, how would you change the world if you could change one thing? And you said, like, I would redistribute extreme wealth so everybody could be, have shelter and food and water. And you want the hungry fed literally, and you also want the sexually hungry satisfied. It's just that sex isn't the ultimate answer to satisfying our hunger. It was designed as a witness to point to the only one who can satisfy that lasting hunger and give us the intimacy and love and joy that we long for. I believe that used wrongly, sex can lead to addiction and bondage and ultimately death, not necessarily physical, but spiritual eternal death. We're told in Romans 6, 23, that the wages or the paycheck of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we talked about how that gift is can begin now. It does begin now knowing our creator in a personal, intimate way. I just want to encourage you to continue to grapple with the historical reality of Jesus. He did come 2,000 years ago, lived, died. Uh, there's proof, lots of proof of his resurrection. He says that no one can come to the Father except through him, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. His followers were so convinced of this that one of them was crucified upside down. Another one was boiled in oil. Like they lost everything and were willing to lose everything for him because they knew what a treasure he was. So you're an incredibly intelligent woman, and I just urge you to like fully do your homework and read Jesus's words yourself and really check it out. I've talked about this, but for those who put their trust in him, we do this swap. So Jesus became on the cross an adulterer, a liar, a luster, a hater, a murderer, so that we might become perfectly clean and holy and righteous in God's eyes. We know that God the Father approved of this transaction because he raised Jesus from the dead three days later. So I just do see God's kindness for you specifically, Alice. He knows you. He sees you. He loves you. And just as far as orchestrating this podcast recording, not because I have all the answers. I certainly don't. But just for someone to be able to point you in his direction, I think is his love for you. And I just want to leave you with this call and promise from Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. 
Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And that concludes this conversation. If you love this conversation, please leave a review uh, down below or wherever you're listening to this podcast. The reviews tremendously help us. And it could be simple, just like, ah, I love this conversation. It doesn't have to be something long. We really, really appreciate it. And it helps get more of these authentic discussions out into the world. And remember, truth is out there. Join us for the next episode to keep exploring.